Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. We believe that with smart marketing, you can compete with the largest players in your industry. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'm going to be joined by Tamson Webster, and we're going to explore how to become irresistible to your prospects and your customers. Trust me, there's some magical gold inside of today's interview. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Are you all in on Instagram, but you're overwhelmed by a never-ending stream of direct messages? Do you feel like you're losing out on turning legit prospects into customers? Do you know you're leaving money on the table, but there's only so much of you to go around? Your solution is Instagram DM automation by ManyChat, the platform that turns your Instagram conversations into conversions. Here's what ManyChat does for you. Number one, it reduces your stress by instantly answering your followers' most common questions directly within Instagram DMs so you can focus on other business building tasks. Number two, ManyChat supercharges your Instagram promotions. For example, ask your followers to DM you a keyword and ManyChat will guide them towards a sale without you doing a thing. Number three, ManyChat effortlessly collects email addresses or phone numbers, enabling you to move those Instagram conversations to a platform you can control. Plus, Instagram comments can trigger automations. The best part, you can start testing ManyChat's advanced features for free. Simply visit manychat.com SME for 30-day free access to ManyChat's full-featured pro account. For faster setup, do this in front of your computer. Again, visit manychat.com SME. You support this show by checking out our sponsors. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Is your influencer marketing process a complete mess? Are you frustrated trying to jump between emails, direct messages, text messages, and ever-changing spreadsheets? What if you could eliminate the chaos and instead focus your valuable time on finding high-quality influencers and proving your ROI? Your solution is Tagger, the leading end-to-end influencer marketing platform that's actually easy to use. Here's what Tagger does for you. Number one, it literally handles everything. Use Tagger to sign contracts, review content, loop in collaborators, activate campaigns, and pay influencers. Number two, Tagger's discovery tool finds you quality creators fast. Gone is your hunt for talent. Want to find influencers who have an affinity for your brand? Check. Or influencers who work with your competitors? Check. Number three, easily track and report ROI. Tiger tracks earn media value, compares influencers side by side, measures engagement and growth, and much, much more. Plus, Tiger supports influencers on all the major social platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Pinterest, and TikTok. Want to see how it works? Go to taggermedia.com slash SME and hit the request demo button. You'll get a live customized demo that shows you how Tagger will simplify your influencer marketing process and make you look like a rock star. Again, visit taggermedia.com slash SME. You support this show by checking out our sponsors.
And now for this week's interview with Tamson Webster. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Tamson Webster. If you don't know who Tamson is, she is a message strategist who helps founders and experts gain more attention and impact. Uh, she's the author of Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. Her mastermind is called The Red Thread Mastermind. Tamson, welcome to the show. I am delighted to be here, Michael. Thanks so much. I'm very excited to have you here. So today, Tamson and I are going to explore how to become irresistible to <laughs> prospects and customers. But before we go there, love to start with your story. How'd you get into marketing? Start wherever you want to go. Yeah, I got into marketing because I wanted to be employable. That's <laughs> frankly, oh, um, and because it was the most creative field of business. So I spent my high school years as an arts kid and love the arts, didn't love struggling. What kind of arts? Just out of curiosity, because that's such a huge category. You're talking like drawing or are you talking about like stage stuff? Kind of, all of it. Yeah. I love studio art. But now that I look back on the stuff that I did and at the time, I was like, I thought I was great. And now I look at myself, I'm like, you are terrible at studio art. Good thing you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. I actually won an award at graduation for creative writing. I was involved in every theater production, but one in the six years I was at that school. It was a middle school and an upper school. I was in the chorus and the honors choir. Like, yeah, I was like all in on arts. Oh, very all cool. In. Okay, yeah. cool. But I didn't love a struggle. <laughs> and I had some friends that were amazing vocalists and actors, and they they went on to be professional actors and singers. And I just knew I didn't have that kind of hustle. So, you know, this was in the early 90s, and, and it was, you know, I don't know how many, <laughs> you and I have probably been through many recessions at this point. Of course. But that was one of them, and that was one where it was like, okay, employability would be great. And I'm like, but I don't want to give up my creative thing. So what's the most creative business application I can think of? And it was marketing. Mm. And it came from my love of the arts because I love the arts, but obviously not everyone does. And so I had this question of like, how do you get people to care about things? And fundamentally, I think that's a central question of marketing. How do you get people to care? So that's that's really where it got started. And I, I haven't really not, I mean, I've really done marketing in one form or another ever since. But I'd say it's more accurate to say I've really never stopped asking that question. How do you get people to care? But, you know, through all the different things that I've done. And, and that's, yes, it's been marketing and it's been in nonprofits and for profits. And I've been on the agency side of things and I've done community and social strategy and sales messaging. And then on top of that, I, I had two kind of very significant moonlighting jobs in addition to marketing. And one was being the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, which is one of only nine what's known as legacy level TEDx events in the world. Uh, and the other was as a Weight Watchers leader, of all things. And that actually taught me more than anything else about the answer to that question. How do you get people to care? Huh. Well, tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit more about that. So TEDx and Weight Watchers, how do they teach you more about how to get people to care? Like, elaborate a little bit more. Yeah. So with TEDx, I mean, it, the whole tagline, the whole tagline of TED, of TED is ideas worth spreading. And so I really saw this kind of from two different angles. One was, of course, you know, how do I use what I've learned at that point? You know, it was about, you know, 17, 20 years of marketing. How do I use what I've learned to help these speakers pull out of their ideas, what other people would care about. That's That was part of it. But the other thing that I saw and really was in many ways the inspiration for the book was how difficult it was for these same people to articulate at the beginning of the process what their what the idea was. So even when they were submitting their idea to, to us, the organizers, just I just saw over and over again how difficult it was for someone to summarize their idea quickly and to summarize it in a way where the real true power of the idea came through. And so that taught me a couple things. One is, as I said, it became the inspiration for what ended up becoming the methodology I, I write about in the book. But it also showed me that something that I'd seen all the years that I had you know, been in marketing, kind of sitting between these two worlds of like you know, the arts and athletics and you know business and, and liberal arts and all of that, was that a lot of times it just came down to essentially a translation issue, which is crazy because it's it's all English generally. But 
it really helped me identify that one of the chief problems for getting people to see the power in an idea is that you get stuck in your own perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And so once I had that realization kind of combined with what I'd learned in the 13 years as a Weight Watchers leader, a lot of that started to unpack, right? Because what became clear when I was a Weight Watchers leader was all the stuff that I'd been taught in, you know, <laughs> graduate school, undergraduate and graduate marketing, you know, I've you know, got a undergraduate business degree and an MBA and all the things that I was taught about how you get people to care didn't actually work that well on an individual basis mm-hmm. because, you know, at Weight Watchers, my job was to you know get people to care enough about doing something that they would change their thinking or behavior. And, you know, that, in other words, how do you get people enough to care about what they're doing so that they will change? And how do you get them really to change themselves? And more specifically, how do you get them to convince themselves to change? Right. And that became a really interesting question to me because, you know, back to my you know, day job as a marketer, I was like, well, if I could figure out a better way to get people to convince themselves to change, then I'm going to be a much better marketer as well, because it's going to you know, ideally going to be a lot less effortful. It's going to be a lot more efficient. And since by and large, I was dealing with organizations that had limited resources, don't we all, in marketing, right. that it was going to be, you know, I would be able to do more with less. And that's always the challenge. Fascinating. So you bring us up to the present. So you wrote this book and what are you doing now? Like, tell us kind of like, what is it you're doing these days? Well, most of my work is still inspired by the work that I started doing as a moonlighting job with TEDx Cambridge. I I found that I loved that work so much that I wanted to build my business around that. And it was more specifically, how do I help experts and oftentimes expert founders explain and articulate their ideas so that people will act on them and that they can get the investment and the attention and the income that they're looking for. So these days, it's mostly consulting. I work with both individuals and organizations, lots of startups, uh, on their go-to-market messaging, on their investor pitching, value propositions, those kinds of things. And because of that extensive background in in speaking and presentations, I do still work with a a number of people and professional speakers on uh, honing a keynote or helping people who've never been professional speakers figure out what that initial keynote should be or, you know, and or operating, like, let's say you've got an expert that's just written a book. How do you prepare a talk that really highlights the the best power of that book? Outstanding. Excellent. Excellent. I, I resonate with so much of your journey. My background is in speech, so I have an undergraduate and master's degree in speech. So it's not all that different. You know, it's about presenting ideas in ways that are receivable by the other end. And isn't that kind of the core of marketing, you know? So this is a great transition to my next question, which is, why is it that us marketers that are listening right now need to understand the motivations of our customers? Like, why is that so important to marketing for those that maybe are a little skeptical? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it comes back to a little bit of what I was saying before is that fundamentally that decision to act, right? We may do that. We may choose to do something, but the process that we end up convincing ourselves to do that, right? We're not going to do something as humans unless some part of our brain tells us like, yeah, this is a good idea because, and that this is a good idea because is essentially a story. I mean, it's a rationalization, it's a justification, et cetera. But if we can agree that like that always happens, right? That's going to point one, that we're always going to, before we do something, we need to convince ourselves that it's the right thing for us to do for whatever reasons. And second, that one of the primary activities of marketing is to get people to act then I think it's important that you need to match those two things together, right? In in other words, in order to get people to act, that we have to be able to figure out a way for them to convince themselves. Now, that's where this motivation piece comes in because one of the things that I learned when I was a Weight Watchers leader, because I just became deeply fascinated in that question, like, well, how is it that people decide and, and, and what makes them decide? And how do you make a sustained change? Because particularly when it comes to long-term health goals, which is what I was working with people on at Weight Watchers, you know, most people know how to lose five pounds. You know, many of us have lost the same five pounds over and over and over again. Amen. (laughs) It's sustaining that, right? It's sustaining the ability to maintain health changes that I became really fascinated because it's like, I didn't, 
I mean, I love these, I loved my members, but I didn't want to keep seeing them. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, I didn't want to see them come back because if they came back, that means that, that something wasn't successful. And so I learned in all that exploration, and this is probably not news to a lot of the people listening, that there's really two kinds of motivation. There's there's what's known as extrinsic motivation, which is externally motivated. And that's what happens when you know, somebody in a position of authority or whatever kind of says, you must do this, right? Or there's something outside of yourself that makes you go, okay, I'm getting paid to do this, or there's going to be a punishment if I don't. But it's not something that's really driven from within. That driven from within motivation, intrinsic motivation, is the motivation I got really, really interested in because that was the one that I said that I could say, well, okay, well, if someone's motivated for their own reasons and they're doing it regardless of what external things might be in play, that, again, because of how we justify our actions, was likely to be a much more stable basis of, of change and thinking or behavior than anything else. You know, if we could get people to think differently about themselves or about the action they were that we were trying to get them to take, then we could take a one-time extrinsic action and turn it into a sustained intrinsic change. And that, to me, you know, the reason why that's so important for marketing is because, as I was saying before, like most of us in marketing are operating with limited resources and short timeframes and both of those things are kind of the opposite of what you need for change. So it's a much more efficient and ultimately long-term effective way to do that central job of marketing, which is to change thinking and behavior. So what I'm hearing you say is if we understand what motivates our customers and we can help them to think differently, we can not just get someone who maybe is a passive consumer of whatever it is we have to sell, but maybe someone who's an active recurring customer who loves everything about what we stand for and what we sell because we've helped kind of transform their thinking. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. Right. I mean, that's absolute best case scenario is you get someone who not only has made this decision on their own and then keeps making it, keeps using your product or service, but they are so convinced of it, right? The story that they tell themselves is so powerful that they start telling it to other people and creating other converts. And that I think is, you know, advocacy, right? That's the top of the pyramid of what we're always looking for with marketing. But we know we don't get there unless they've passed through all the phases first. And for all sorts of reasons, I think a lot of times we're satisfied with just getting people to act one time. But like I said, I, that, that seemed to me fundamentally inefficient. And this might be a strange thing to say, but it was informed by my years as a, as a Weight Watchers leader where if success wasn't built in, if I weren't setting people up for success, like I didn't want them to act and then it not work. Because particularly for them, because in, particularly in the context of weight goals or health goals or whatever, most people come with a lot of failure already, a mm-hmm. lot of times where acting didn't work or didn't continue to work. And so I didn't want to do something where like, yeah, I can make you act. I can say you, you need to do this or else or like this is the only way to do it, you know, or this is what worked for me. So you must do it this way. But if it didn't work for them, then I was just adding to that pattern of failure for them and not building them up to feel like they were strong and capable and actually could achieve this larger thing that they were looking for. And that was really important to me. And it was, you know, one of the biggest lessons that I learned there was that I ended up summarizing it in a phrase that I often repeat to myself. And that was that the biggest leaps start from the surest ground. Oh, I like that. In other words, when we're asking people to do something different, so often we're asking them to do everything new, like be new, be someone new, try something new, all of that. And we make them doubt and even oftentimes not even use the things that are really strong for them. But if you're really asking people to do something different and to stay doing it, they have to feel confident in that. They have to feel confident not only that the action is going to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish for themselves, but they have to feel confident that they are capable of doing it. That's personally important to me, but I have found that that motivation behind effecting change in people ends up by and large creating more effective change. Sweet. All right. So the biggest leaps start from the surest ground. And I love that quote. And we want to get people to think differently. So to all the marketers listening right now, you know, what do our prospects, future customers, what do they need to hear in order to be motivated to make a decision, right? So you've come up with a couple of important principles. What do they need to hear? What do we need to hear? And then ultimately, what do they need to hear? Yeah. I mean, 
fundamentally, it comes down to they need to hear a story that they can comfortably tell themselves over and over and over again and feel good about. And so the first thing that, that kind of helps cement that is I refer to it as smart, capable, and good. So one of the things that I discovered through all the research, not only for the book, but in my life as a marketer and way watcher leader, is that it's a human drive state to be perceived well by others. We want and need to be seen as smart, as I like to say, smart, capable, and good, that we're, you know, that we're intelligent people, that we we have good intent and that we make good decisions based on all of that. And if we understand that that is a basic drive state, that whatever we do is motivated by that. So one of the tenets of Weight Watchers was that there was a positive intention behind every behavior, which, by the way, is true way beyond health situations. What do you mean a positive? Wait, say that again. There's a what? There's a positive intent behind every behavior. What does that mean? It means that no matter what you do, even if the kind of outcome of the behavior is negative, even if the behavior itself is negative, there's usually a some positive reason that you're doing it. You're trying, like, let's take it to a a health thing. Like, let's say you like eat a pint of ice cream after dinner one night, you know, because you're stressed and overwhelmed and whatever. Well, that's not a positive behavior when it comes to your physical health goals, but there's a positive intent for your mental health goals. You are trying to comfort yourself. You're trying to make yourself feel better. You're trying to do something that allows you to feel in control. Mm. You're trying to do something that allows you to feel, you know, smart and or capable and or good. Oh, I think that understanding that we never do a thing like it can get very inception like, but even when we're doing self-harming things, we are doing it because it helps us feel in control or something like that. Uh, so okay, you map that out and just say, well, you know, you know, our, our customers are still human, right? They're still operating under these same rules. That if we start from that understanding that people are going to be motivated to act from that desire to see themselves or to be seen by others as being smart, capable, and good. The first thing you start to understand is that a lot of the way that we have been messaging, you know, marketing messages, sales messages, is kind of backwards. Yeah, because we focus on the problem, right? Absolutely. And it's not that, that that's not important, right? It's important that we identify with, you know, hey, you've got this problem, you're trying to solve it. But we we add to the problem. I mean, we've been, in many cases, we've been taught to add to the problem. You know, I didn't. Yeah, we, we talk about agitating the problem. That's a regular tenet of marketing. Absolutely. So we try to make them feel worse about it. We like start to up, up the stakes and then we try to say, you know, or we'll do things like we try to create a need where one doesn't exist or we try to instill new beliefs. But a lot of times what that ends up doing is making people feel, if you step back from it and saying, well, particularly with, you know, it's sometimes a stylistic thing, but we can end up quite unintentionally making people feel not smart, not capable and not good. And that never works long term. So, you know, one of the keynotes that I give like this is that's a central idea of it, which is that that pain is the enemy of long term change. And the greatest pain possible is in that gap between I'm a good person who did a not good thing. That is so painful for us that our brains will tell extraordinary stories in order to make that pain go away. And so what can happen is that if you are the marketer or the salesperson that's giving them that message that makes them feel that kind of pain, they are not going to go, oh, no, yeah, you're right. I'm awful. I'm stupid. I should have been doing it your way. Most of the time they're going to be like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> like You don't have the information. Your perspective is not correct. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I know that this is the right thing for me. So that idea of understanding that people are always trying to make themselves feel smart, capable, and good means that if you are an agent of that, if your message your product, your service, your business helps people feel smart, capable, and good, you're already eight steps ahead of the people who are making them feel bad about it. Interesting. Okay, cool. And then let's talk about this anchoring concept you and I talked about a little bit before we you know, you've got some sort of anchoring into current beliefs concept. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, it comes back to this smart, capable, and good piece. It's kind of the next logical step from there, which is the more that we can reinforce that what people want, you know, the problems they're trying to solve or the needs they're trying to meet or the goals they're trying to achieve are smart, capable, and good ones, right? We're, again, starting ourselves in an important place. So one of the things that I talk about with my clients and in my approach is that we always anchor our messages and our ideas in something that people already want because a, it makes them feel smart, capable, good for wanting it. B they're inherently curious about the answer because if they want 
an answer to a problem, but don't yet have one or you don't, don't yet have a good one, when you represent that you do, well, they, they're going to want to know about that. So the third thing it does is it makes it immediately relevant to you and to them. The second thing is to think about you know, how if you can anchor it also in something that they already believe, you're also saving yourself all kinds of mental effort on their part, right? One of the things that I mentioned earlier was that a lot of times in marketing and in sales messaging, we are trying to get people to believe new things. And we're not always successful there, right? Because we're not always clear on what is it they need to know in order to believe that. But again, that's one of those things where I was like, well, what if I could find a way to anchor my new behavior in something somebody already believes? Isn't that going to be more successful for them? Then I don't have to convince them of anything. They've already convinced themselves. Can you give me an example? Yeah, my favorite example is one that's an, uh, it's an ongoing uh, example in the book because it's one that everybody knows about. And that is the De Beers diamond tagline that a diamond is forever. Okay. And so the way that I describe it and the way that I think about that is that you know, back in 1947, which is how, like when that tagline dates, engagement rings weren't necessarily common and diamond rings, engagement rings weren't common. And they certainly weren't common amongst everyday non-elite, non-noble people. Right. This is a problem for De Beers, who has the worldwide monopoly on mined diamonds, and they wanted to extend, you know, they, they could control the supply, but they needed to figure out what they could do to extend demand. And so they anchored essentially their approach, you know, in what people already wanted, which was people when engaging in a, you know, about to get married, they want in a lot of ways the best symbol of this commitment that they're about to make. Right. And up until 1947, you know, by and large, they were focused on kind of the ring itself, this unbroken circle of metal, a ring with no beginning and no end, which by the way, is a perfectly good symbol of forever, I'd say. Right. But that doesn't sell diamonds. So enter this tagline, something that people already believed, but in a different context, right? So when they said a diamond is forever, most people go, well, that's literally true for all intents and purposes. It's very, you know, it's a hard, very hard substance, very difficult to destroy. They take a long time to form. They last a long time. So when they said kind of out of context, a diamond is forever, people are like, well, that's true. But in the context of I want the best symbol and I've only been paying attention to the metal circle of my ring, as soon as I hear this other thing that I already believe, that a diamond is forever, it makes it pretty impossible for me to ignore the fact that I've, you know, not been looking at the kind of ring, you know, that I could do that. Because now with this diamond and forever, but it takes on this metaphorical significance, right? And someone can go, oh. I could like double down on the forever. I could have a forever ring and a forever diamond. Well, that means we're like super forever. Uh, and and <laughs> this became a story that we told ourselves, not yeah. consciously, right. but because we already believe that a diamond is forever in the context of what a ring could symbolize, it totally took on this additional meaning and the one that De Beers wanted us to take on. Fascinating. Okay, so we've learned so far that it's really important to with our messaging to signal that, hey, audience, you are smart, capable, and good. And if we can somehow figure out a way to anchor our messaging into their existing beliefs, and we use this diamond example, right? That's actually very powerful as well. So I'd love to transition into some practical things that marketers can do to apply some of these principles to their marketing. Because, you know, most people are like, I could never come up with a tagline that says a diamond is forever for my industry. <laughs> <laughs> but I found a way to make it easier. Talk to me about that. What's the steps that we ought to consider? Sure. Well, the first thing to understand is that that to me, a message, you know, a message and an idea are two separate things, right? The idea is your business, your product, your service. It's kind of like it's the big amorphous thing, even if it's fairly specific, right? But a message is how you talk about that idea to a particular audience to achieve a particular outcome. In other words, it's the clothes that your idea wears to go and speak to a particular audience to achieve something. And so really the very first step is to figure out, if you're trying to figure out your message, <laughs> first step is, who is this message for? Who are we talking to here? Because if we don't decide that first, then we end up trying to create a message that appeals to everybody simultaneously. And that, of course, means that we appeal to none. Uh, it's the equivalent of trying to give a one-size-fits-all message, you know, if you've ever had a one size fits all or one size fits most shirt, 
you know, it'll cover you. Sure. But it's not the one you're going to reach for when you're like, that belongs to me. Yes. But to create this kind of sustained change in thinking or behavior, like I said, it has to be a story that people will tell themselves. It has to feel like something that's for them, which means you have to know who they are. So that's really the first step is who are they? Oh, real quick on that. Who are they? I think a lot of marketers seem to understand who in the world they're trying to target, but do you have any tips? Because obviously this is an area we could go pretty deep on, but do you have any tips on like, you know, exactly who we should try? Should we be going after the ideal audience or should we be going after the audience that we know is our customer, but maybe, I don't know, what are your thoughts on this? So my thoughts on this is that are, oh, I have so many thoughts. We could indeed go very deep on this, and particularly since, you know, my yeah. husband, Tom Webster, yeah. who is a market researcher, and we have lots of, yeah. you know, our pillow talk is all about personas. No, it's, it's totally not. <laughs> but we, you know, we both have some strong feelings about this. And actually my undergraduate degree, one of them is in, in market research. So I understand this very well. Yeah. Here's the tricky thing about things like personas, because usually when we say, okay, when I say know, know who your audience is, people are like, oh, that's no problem. We've got all our, our personas and our avatars. But what I found is that more often than not, I mean, not always, but more often than not, that these personas that we create are the people that we wish were our customers or are the folks that we're thinking of them as people who are already convinced, you know, would already be convinced that we're right, but they just don't know it yet. And that's, that's taken a big risk in my mind. So the way that I think about who you're for is to think about it much more from a perspective of mindset. It's less about, you know, figuring out your, you know, your Oliver town and your, you know, your Penny Park side or whatever. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> I don't even know how I came up with this and thinking about, okay, who are these people? Like what category are they in? Are they, you know, are they decision makers? And by the way, it's not people. I, <laughs> I ask this question to my TEDx speakers often and I'm like, well, who is this idea for? And they're like, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's not. Generally, if we say everyone, we actually mean everyone who sees the world we do, the way we do. Right. And so it's really important for us to define what that is. So I like to think of it in terms of three things. First, what do people want? You know, in other words, what are the goals they're trying to achieve? What's the problem they're trying to solve? Uh, what's the need they're trying to meet that they would agree? See, we get really superior to our audiences a lot of times. We're like, well, I know what you really want is X. Again, that makes them feel not smart when you come at them that way, right? So what do they say they want? What do you know they want? And yeah, it's going to be things that probably feel kind of unsexy to you. Things like, well, they're going to want to like, you know, decrease costs and increase profitability. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that's going to get them hired, fired and promoted. So like, what do they want? The second thing that I think about when we're talking about who are you really for is a shared value. Meaning what is something that they must have? What's a value that they must have to be open to your approach, to your product or service? So for instance, I was talking with a client the other day. This isn't, this, what I'm talking about is not privileged information, but they were, you know, they were talking about what is fundamentally an approach that, you know, to productivity that focuses on people, Right because their idea is all about something that the leadership needs to do to help the well-being of their people, both inside and outside the office. So when we were talking through this idea of the audience uh, together, and I said, what's a value that they must have? You know, the thing that I pointed out to her was like, okay, the person, this person must value their people, right? They must value that, that kind of the, the whole person. You mean their employees when you say they're people? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, their employees. But I, you know, what I said to her is like, they clearly need to value their employees beyond just their role as production machines, right? Right. right. In other words, this is, this is an idea that everyone can benefit from. I'm like, but not everyone's going to listen to it. Because if you're talking to a, a leader who is like, yeah, I want to know how to make my team more productive, but you know, they just care about throughput and they don't actually care about the well-being, the health and well-being of their team, then they're actually never going to be open to her message. So this is the thing that's really important is this kind of shared value. What must they value? And so that's what we ended up identifying was that they needed to value the health and well-being of their employees. And then the final thing is what's the specific struggle, you know, what they're trying to answer. In other words, you know, what are they Googling to try to find? What are they asking their friends and colleagues, for, you know, for answers for referrals for when they're saying, hey, we're trying to solve this problem. What is that? And so this is really where the red thread that I talk about in the book, it starts actually at, at that point when we identify what is a question, a, you know, a struggle, you know, I like to frame it as a question, but what is a question they 
currently have for which they don't yet have a good or satisfactory answer. And when you get that kind of combination of what do they want, what do they value, what's that specific struggle, you get a very sharp picture of the kind of people that your product or service is truly for and the kinds of people who would actually be open to your message and your idea. So what do they want? I would imagine that there is a lot of guesswork here because most of the people listening probably have no idea what they really want. Am I close? <laughs> well, they, I mean, but that's like I said, I mean, when it comes to what an audience really, what, what your audience, and I just use audience for yeah. clients, customers, et cetera, um, what they really want, it, it really is kind of fundamental. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, what I refer to as the, you know, the hierarchy of business needs. In other words, you know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which of course has its challenges and issues, but you know, it's, it's this, you know, it's, if people aren't familiar with it, it's a triangle where the, you know, the base is widest at the bottom. And Maslow basically said that there's kind of a hierarchy of needs that people need to satisfy. And the first one is like safety and security. You need, you know, a roof over your head and, you know, warmth and, you know, food. Um, Then it's, you know, the next kind of things that you need are like, you know, I forget what they are off the top of my head, but all the way at the top are things like self-actualization. The thing is, it's very similar in when it comes to businesses, too, where you can assume that at the very base of the business pyramid, people want to make sure that they have money coming in. Right. Right. And then they're going to be curious about like, you know, all right, how do I make sure that my team is satisfied? How do we make sure that we're, you know, and then that goes all the way up to you know, how are we getting loyalty from our customers and clients and how can we be seen as industry leaders? So my recommendation when you're trying to figure out and if you don't know what people want is go low, as low on that pyramid as you can to say, you know, how can we make more money? Or, you know, one of the goals from one of my clients is how can we detect and prevent operational issues? I mean, it's not sexy. It isn't. And this is what I say to my clients all the time. Like, you're not going to find this, what I call goal question, very interesting at all. It's not where you're going to differentiate. It's where you're going to get their attention because this is what they're looking for right now. They're not looking for your, you know, magically named thing about, you know, hey, did you know you need this squiggle thing or whatever, you know? And you're yeah. like, they're like, I don't even know what that is. They're like, does it help me like not lose my job? Right. So I, I think people actually know more than they think they do about their what their clients need. They just actually need to take off their marketer hat and go, I'm a person, they're a person, what do people want? And that really is what it comes down to. And I would imagine there's seasons, right? So for example, at the very beginning of the pandemic, most people just wanted security. How do I not lose my job? How do we stay in business? Yeah, you got exactly. It. And now it's starting to change a little bit. Shared value part is the shared value between the organization and the customer. You know, talk yep. to me about that, like that a little bit more. How do we identify that? Well, it's one of those things, like I said, when I'm working with clients on it, usually we, I start the conversation almost from reverse. You know, I've done this work long enough that I get a sense of, you know, based on what they're telling me that they're doing, I'm like, oh, okay. So if somebody didn't care about their employees, they wouldn't be open to this. Or if they didn't care about reliability or whatever, then they're not going to be interested in this. Because sometimes it's easier to understand first, like what, what would be the wrong fit? I see. And it's amazing to me how many people haven't thought about that because again, they want to convince themselves because they want to be smart, capable and good that everyone would benefit. And so the thing I often say, of course, like, of course, everyone would benefit, but we're really talking about people who are going to convince themselves and the people most likely to be convinced are the people who are already kind of in the right mindset for whatever you have. So it really does start from, okay, who wouldn't be a fit? And that's reverse engineer to what kind of value or values they need to have in order to get there. So an example of a value, just give me a couple more examples, just because it's a little more nebulous than what we talked about. Sure. Talk- yeah. I mean, values can be things like in, they need to value innovation or they need to value creativity or they need to value, I'm trying to think of other ones off the top of my head from recent ones, that they need to value creating a legacy. Independence, right? I mean, there's another one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Independence. I've had people say, you know, they need to value personal uh, responsibility and accountability. There you go. You know, a, a lot of it depends on what it is that you're trying to sell. I mean, right. one of my clients is a scientific device manufacturer or research. They develop tools for scientists, basically. And they're a premium product. And the reason why they're a premium product is they want to make sure that the accuracy and reliability of everything that they're, you know, of the results of all that, that their instruments produce is, you know, within a very tight margin of error. 
And you would think like, well, wouldn't all scientists want that? But actually, no, not all of them do. Like there are people for whom good enough is good enough as long as it gets them something and then they can get some research published. But that's not the client that these folks are for. These are folks that are where that level of dedication to accuracy and reliability of the results is so high that they are willing to pay a premium for it. Love it. And that's probably a good way to think about it is like what must they value so much that they'd be willing to pay a premium for it or they would be willing to do something different if they saw a better way to do it. Okay, this is awesome. So we've identified really some good questions to ask about the audience. Once we know who that audience is, what's the next step? So that next step is, and usually it comes right out of that, is to identify what is it they want to know? What is that question, that specific, you know, again, that struggle, but I like to frame it as a question, that they're currently looking for an answer. And again, they either don't have a good answer or they don't have an answer at all. So again, this is going to be a non, generally a not sexy thing. It's going to be like, how can we avoid issues? Or what's the best way to improve my business? Or what's the best way to improve sustainability? Or how can I engage my team? It's the stuff that is constantly out there, but that people still don't have good answers for, right? But it's generally the reason why you or your business exists because you're like, well, other people answer this question, but not our way. So Mm -hmm. the next step after understanding what your audience is, is really clearly identifying what I call the goal question, which is what is that question that they're actively trying to answer for themselves right now and for which your idea serves as an answer and a better one. And then what comes after that? So what comes after that is helping, and this sounds counterintuitive, that what we're finding after that is the problem that's getting in the way, because this is where we have to perform a bit of a tightrope walk, because we need to help them understand that what they've been doing, you know, why they've been struggling to answer this question, why they haven't found an answer to this question yet without right? Invoking the not smart, not capable, not good. Right. So the way that I found that is effective for that is really to put it in the form of perspectives. Because for whatever reason, what you do is very tied to your identity, right? Like when you say, well, you're doing it wrong, people are like, and even if you say you're looking at it wrong, that also kind of invokes what's known as psychological reactance, this kind of pushback on you, like saying, well, well, no, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> so what can be very helpful instead is that most people are willing to be, again, back to the smart, capable, good piece. Most people want to be seen as open-minded. Right. <laughs> so what I find is a really useful way to explain what's getting in the way is to say, well, when most people or what the usual answers, when we're trying to find, again, we're trying to find an answer to the question, we say most answers focus on X, right? More than on Y. That that idea to be able to kind of present to someone Hey, you know what? Most people approach this by focusing on, you know, let's say it's, you know, your performance inside of work, your employee's performance inside of work more than outside of work. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Or we, we tend to focus on, you know, when we're trying to figure out how to improve the profitability of our business, we focus more on our fixed investments, like those things that we can directly control more than on the things that are outside of our control. I love this. So the more than on is kind of a way of showing an alternative without saying, hey, you made a mistake and you focused on the wrong thing. Correct. Exactly. Because what we're trying to do, and this is the thing that I go into, yeah, this is this is what I refer to in the, the book as the duck bunny, but the problem pair. It's always a two-part problem. Mm. But, and you're exactly right, Michael. It's, it's about saying, here's a perspective. That perspective makes sense. A smart, capable, good person would absolutely focus on that thing. So for instance, smart, capable, good people are absolutely focused on driving action. And there's also an alternative perspective that works well. Like, for instance, you could also focus on change, which would be sustained action. And, of course, you're setting this up in such a way where that second part of that pair essentially the door you want them to walk through because once you've got them thinking about that other thing, once you've got them thinking about you know more than what's fixed or what changes, then you can open the door to your product, which is you know something that adapts dynamically to changing conditions. Or if you've got them focused not just on a one-time action, but on sustained change, now you've got the door open to something that is going to allow, you know, it's going to work well with, here's the thing about how People, you know, make the case to themselves, for instance. So that problem that's getting in the way, you know, I like to talk about it as it, it represents a problem for you, right? And, and fundamentally, it's a problem that your audience has to solve before they can actually 
solve the problem that was in their question in the first place. Like, how do we improve profitability? Well, first, we have to solve the problem of this tension between, you know, the things that we can control and the things that we can't. Oh, oh, okay. Well, how do we do that? Right? Like, that's what we're trying to get to is to say, okay, if we can take them off of that initial question, we move it into an area that tends to be a lot less charged for them and moves it into, like, as I said before, that area where now it's being open-minded and kind of expanding your perspective rather than, you know, you're doing it wrong, which is just about guaranteed to not work long-term. This is like the money part. This is the part where like everybody's glad they stuck around. (laughs) (laughs) So what comes after that? Because I know there's uh, at least one or two more things you wanted to mention. Yeah, yeah. So what comes after that is that once you've opened up that new perspective, now you need to snap their attention to it, right? So this is what, you know, a diamond is forever did so beautifully well. I call this part the truth um, because it creates what in storytelling is known as the moment of truth or my favorite word for it, which is the Greek word, the anagnorisis. <laughs> but it's the, it's the, it, it describes the moment in a story. Uh, and this is true of these stories that we tell ourselves, but the moment in the story where the character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances. And so, you know, back to the diamond is forever example, you know, when, you know, we collectively and societally heard this, a diamond is forever. We were like, that's true. But uh uh-oh, because it creates that moment of truth, it starts to snap our attention to that new perspective. Because if we want the best symbol, which is what we want, so we've anchored it in something that we want, and we believe that a diamond is forever, literally, it makes it really hard to ignore that new perspective of paying attention to the kind of ring, not just the ring, right? So what we're trying to do with that next step, establish what people want this two-part perspective, problem of perspective that's getting in the way. The next piece, and Michael, I have to tell you, this is the piece that most messages miss, is that we have to give them one more thing that makes that problem impossible to ignore. Mm. And that is almost always anchored in what they currently believe. And so one of the things that I do often with my clients is we spend a lot of time on this because we are going through over and over and over again and saying, well, what, what does our audience already believe in maybe in some other context that would make them agree that that new perspective is key, right? That that's where it all comes in. And that's that next piece. So yeah, it's so powerful. Diamond is forever is the great, the best example, again, of that piece of that message, but it's what snaps their attention to the kind of new perspective. And ideally it makes it impossible not to do something, right? Because in a story, the moment of truth, you know, when that And that anagnorisis where the character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances, they must make a choice at that point. And usually what they're choosing between is what they want, which is what we were established. That was the first thing that we established and what they have been doing so far. If given this new piece of information, which ideally is, again, something that they believe, if they continue to believe it, but also continue to do what they've been doing, then they are not going to get the answer. They're not going to get what they want. You know, so, you know, if I believe that a diamond is forever and I only pay attention to the circle of metal, then I know now, or at least I believe now that I'm not going to have like the best symbol because I know that there's another option out there. And so that's why this, to me, this, this truth part of a message is so critically important because, you know, most of us are pretty good now at making sure that we've got a problem and solution but we're not good about making sure that problem is impossible to ignore from the audience's perspective. And my experience is the only way to make it impossible for them to ignore from their perspective is to anchor it in something that they already believe is true. Perfect. And does that take us to the end of the basics? It pretty much does. Yeah. Because at that point, I, I oftentimes refer to it as message math when I'm working with my clients or when I'm teaching it to organizations. Because once you have the goal plus that two-part problem plus the truth, it's an equation that equals the change. Remember, the truth forces a choice. And so the change is where you say, okay, so therefore, you know, if you really want this thing, if you really want the best symbol of your commitment, if you really want to improve the profitability of your business, because you agree that these two perspectives in play, because you agree that this thing is true, that's why our answer is to blank, right? And so that's essentially where the red thread concludes is that's why we have this answer. So 
I assume that they can go a lot deeper with your book. Is that correct? Yes. Does your book go through this in a lot of details? That's exactly what the book is all about, was to say, okay, these are these ideas, but how do you actually do this? And so the book is is the same process I walk through with my clients. Yeah. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find out more about you, your book, and anywhere you want to send them in particular? Sure. Well, they can find more about me and the book at TamsinWebster.com. I am literally the only one in the universe. But if they want to get some practice just starting to craft messages in this way and starting to kind of self-diagnose what their own messages might be missing. Um, I've got a worksheet that I've put together called The Conversational Case. And so they can find that at conversationalcase.com. And if they go there, then they can download this worksheet, which basically sets up a a conversational, that's what it is, framework for walking through each of these elements. And it starts with, you know, when I speak with audience like you, they often want to know question they're trying to answer. When looking for that answer, they often focus on current perspective, more than on new perspective. Yet we can all agree it's true that shared belief, and that's why our answer is to change in thinking or behavior. Here's how we do that. And it kind of walks you through. So if they're interested in that, they can go to conversationalcase.com and download that worksheet. Okay. You originally said the conversational case. So I just want to be clear. Is it conversationalcase.com without the the, right? It is conversationalcase.com without the the. And then Tamsin is spelled T-A-M-S-E-N in case anybody wants to go to TamsinWebster.com. If they want to reach out to you on the socials, do you have a preferred platform? I think at this point, Twitter is the best one. And because I am OG on Twitter, <laughs> um, that's the only one that isn't Tamsin Webster. Uh, but on Twitter, I am Tamadir. Okay. Do you spell that like it sounds or how do you spell that? Yeah, Tamadir, T-A-M-A-D-E-A-R. Tamsin Webster, thank you so much for coming on and answering my myriad of questions. Uh, You were awesome. Oh, what a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 483. And if you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a longtime listener, would you let your friends know about this show? I am at Stelzner on Instagram. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.